Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. What would a world look like where you paid a true price for a product, so including all the environmental and the social costs? It's crazy that all these externalities are not part of our accounting and thus pricing system. We have often talked about true cost accounting and true pricing on the podcast, but never really unpacked how to get there. There are so many experiments happening at the moment and so much research, and I'm very happy to unpack them with one of the true pioneers in this space. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with Pietro Galgani of the Impact Institute, a spin-off of the True Price Foundation. Their mission is to empower organizations and individuals to realize the impact economy. A growing number of farmers, producers, shops, wholesalers, cafes, restaurants and supermarkets work on true pricing. A true price is the market price plus the social and environmental costs of a product. Welcome, Pietro. Thank you, Kuhn. And to start with a personal question, what brought you to work, I mean, on an accountancy level, on a calculation level, the costs, obviously, but so deep into the food system and indirectly also on soil? Yeah, I think already uh, from uh, high school, I started, well, it's more for me the question where you just get the drive towards toward a sustainable future. And that I think started already back in high school when there was a bit of a global movement for uh, rights of people and uh, equitable development. As a student, I was involved in that. And then later in university, I was studying industrial ecology and international development. Wow. And I uh, came really to the awareness, uh, yeah, that in the end, the food system, land is the basis but also that the current agriculture system is a very huge problem. It was also a sort of a, the awareness right rose in, the, in that period, like 10, 15 years ago, of big problems of big agri. And uh, there I started to really see that as a key for a, for a more sustainable and equitable development. Then I actually did my thesis about composting uh, as a master student, so that's where the love, uh, super practical, yeah, <laughs> love for organic matter started. That's fascinating. And then, how did you end up at the Impact Institute or a True Price, maybe before that? Because the Impact Institute is relatively young, and I think you've been there for a bit. But how did? Because you could also have ended up at a compost company or let's say more the agriculture side of things. Well, yeah, I always liked to uh, keep a holistic 
picture when analyzing this global problem. We got trained in university also about systems thinking and not focusing on a problem too narrowly to avoid the backfires, the solution backfires. And then um, when I saw this uh, organization, TruePrice, I was really fascinated by the idea of putting down social and environmental impacts together in one coherent framework that also simplifies it and uh, can create so many possibilities. So that's when I joined. And also i really fascinated by the fact that it really interfaces with business as well as NGOs and people. It's a really powerful idea of the true price. So let's unpack it if you have to tell your grandmother or your children, very young children, what is a true price? Like in the simplest terms, people that haven't gone deep into the economic, the heart of the economic beast, how would you describe that to someone that's interested but doesn't know too much about it? Oh my God, I don't know if I can explain it to my grandmother. Uh, I think uh, when I explained it to my in-laws, uh, father and mother-in-law in the end, they only understood it when there was a TV show about it. Uh, I hope the average listener is not like uh, my grandmother uh, or my children. Actually, we had quite a few people bringing up, we need some kind of true cost or true price accounting. We need the real price of things because too much has not been calculated in that. And I think it's very easy to say that, but then do it obviously is a whole different realm. So that's what we're going to unpack. But for anybody that hasn't thought about that, what is the simplest explanation of a true price? Right. We say that the true price is the price of a product if it would also include social costs and environmental costs that this product uh, caused when being produced and used. So a cup of coffee in a bar or something like that, instead of I mean, in Italy, costing one euro and in the Netherlands, maybe four or five would cost four or five plus the environmental plus the social costs. Yeah. So when you to make a cup of coffee, you will have greenhouse gas emissions. You will have land use, water use. You can have air pollution, water pollution. But also you can see how the labor conditions along the value chain can be suboptimal. That's a very diplomatic way of saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there is, uh, you know, people earning below a living uh, income everywhere in the economy. There is labor rights, which are legal. They're not always being met. So all these costs together are costs that are basically present. They're usually paid by someone or by they will be paid by future generations. And the idea is to bring them all down to the level of one product, one cup of coffee, and show it as a surplus cost, surplus price. And uh, the insight is also that the science to calculate these impacts at product level is has been growing a lot in the past decades. And now it's the last step is really just to bring it together and see what does it mean in terms of costs. So you're saying that the data probably is there for many products, probably not all, probably not at the exact level of that type of coffee or that specific brand, etc. But we can state with quite considerable certainty, certain things about bananas, certain things about etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And now the challenge is to get it out of those papers and out of those research studies into a price like next to the product. So you can actually have an idea if the coffee is way too cheap or if the difference is relatively small. Yeah, so there is a field of uh, true cost accounting, which is really about how do you measure these things? And it can be for a product as much as for a farm or uh, for a region or for a country. 
And uh, when we say true pricing or true price, it really means, okay, but what does it mean when a product is in a shop? What are the negative impacts that you can attribute to that product? And what's the cost of that? The price is, of course, a very recognizable number, uh, maybe the most recognizable number that everybody uses all the time. And uh, it's a fascinating idea that with the same ease with which we choose the cheapest product or uh, we look at prices of product, we could also know what is the sustainability profile or the human rights profile of a product. And I think that's that's where we need to go as an economy. And how, like, let's take a, a product, maybe bananas, but you, you should correct me if there's an easy one or one we know more about. Like how much would you say of the environmental cost do we know or are we able to, is, are we close to 90 or 100% that we can say with quite certainty, okay, we know that the costs are somewhere in the range of this. And then the same for the social cost, because I'm imagining that might be more difficult or am I wrong there that there's more data on the environmental side and less on the social side or are they sort of equally developed over the last decade? Yeah, it's a difficult uh, question because, of course, you cannot know the percent that you are at if you don't know the total. But in terms of like, it also depends on which, how you look at it. What do you want to include? Yeah. Yeah. In the way that we look at it, we have developed a list of impacts of with like 10 social impacts, 10 environmental impacts that you should measure. We also have a backup list of 10 impacts, societal impacts that right now there is no data, but you should also take into account. Let's put that aside for a moment. Okay. And this whole framework is online, right? You have it on the website. I will link that below. Yeah. Yeah. So on yeah. trueprice.org, uh, you can find it, the principles for true pricing. And uh, for each of them, we have developed a sort of unit price. So for one unit of CO2, one uh, cubic meter of scarce water, and different units for pollution and for labor indicators. And then the question is, yeah, how do you know for each product how high these indicators are? And uh, I think there is a methodology for all of them, and we've been delving deeper in some products like banana, coffee, cacao chocolate but uh, it can be also very intensive research but I, right now you can cover maybe 50 uh, percent of this list relatively quickly and then on the social side as well like there's enough data to put certain prices on things the data on the social side is being collected by ngos a lot on a specific theme in a specific region in a specific value chain and we do a lot of piecing together different research done by other organizations, it seems that there's a lot of research, of course, not everywhere, but it's just about, it's never been used in this way. It's never been used to look at the social cost of one t-shirt. And that's our work. A lot of this is converting this research to true prices. But we also work uh, with questionnaires on farm. We worked, uh, yeah, in um, banana, coffee, mangoes, uh, lime, all sort of uh, commodities, especially yeah, agricultural commodities to really collect data on farm level because yeah, in the end you can start with an estimate, but you want to end up with, especially for the most important impact of a product, you want to have good measurement that really reflects that specific production region, that specific production area farm. And I think the exciting piece, but also there, and maybe it's been happening before, but what I've seen over the last let's say a year and a half following you guys, obviously and girls on LinkedIn and other places is that these prices actually have gone out into the wild. So people, shops, farmers, organizations, actually some supermarkets even 
have been starting to use these prices. And so how should I envision that? Like I walk into a cafe, you mentioned a cafe is, I think, a, an easy place to start, talk about coffee, chocolate and those kind of things. What does it look like? Is there an extra price on the bill? Like how does it present itself to me as an, a regular customer that maybe is interested, but not absolutely knowledgeable about this work? Yeah, the most common way is just uh, you just see um, when you pay on the receipt, there is an entry next to your coffee, which is the environmental cost of your coffee or a social cost of your coffee. Uh, it's being used now by being launched in a cafe in the Netherlands, actually in November. And, uh, and since November, the year before, because we always do these launches on Black Friday, it's uh, in a supermarket in the city center they selling fruits vegetables with this concept and uh yeah actually it's a bit up to the retailer to the shop whether they want to make it optional to pay it they want to make it mandatory or they want to make it just show it just transparent yeah those are sort of the three levels right like one is transparency two is if there's an option to pay and and what does it mean for I mean, I don't know if you know the prices out of here, but like a kilo of bananas. So I'm in this supermarket in the city center of Amsterdam. Does it more than double the price? Does it just adds a bit? What is the experience there? And then, of course, the question, I mean, they are still in business. They did survive. Like how many people are actually paying the full price, the true price? In the supermarket, it's called the Anzet. It's just mandatory. Everybody's paying it. Okay. So he or she decided to make it like there's, if you enter the supermarket, you pay the true price. No discussion. Yeah. We're just starting to scratch the surface now of what it means for the average consumer to see this and to hear about this. So we said, let's start simple. You have to pay it. And if you want, you can learn more about it, but you don't have to make this choice as a consumer in the shop. And, uh, well, it, uh, they didn't say any sale going down. And they, I think they had 100,000 transactions in the first years using the true price. So, of course, the idea is also becomes a leverage point to finance a sustainable transition in the agri-food sector. Yeah, because then what happens with the extra money? What's the... Let's start. So let's first unpack. Do you know at all how big the difference was with the original, let's say, extractive price and the, the true price? Yeah, to give an idea, I think usually on a kilo price of fruits and vegetables, it will be below one euro. The difference extra yeah so very little yeah it's quite little because when you calculate how much it gets produced on a farm and then you're in the end it ends up often being very little and then what happens to let's say that extra euro yeah what happens with the premium yeah so this be the the next the step that we're working on now in our journey is to create the infrastructure to bring these funds back to make the economy actually better or make the people that go affected better off. Uh, our first part was really to make this possible, to calculate it and to make it visible to everyone. Right now, it's partly invested in uh, carbon offsetting through, we work with a partner, or we, we work with a, with a foundation that, uh, that does its reforestation uh, projects. Which one are you working with? Just for the... Because you've done some research there for sure. Yeah, with Land Life Company, it's called. Okay, we interviewed Yuri, and I think he was number two five years ago when we started the podcast. All right, <laughs> nice. Exactly. And then we we don't have a, right now the way to bring it back to the farms. We 
donate part of it to give directly for the areas that work in the same regions where some of the products are made. Very interesting. Yeah. So it's it's one of these uh, charities that really focusing focuses on bringing just uh, sort of b- basic income or just bringing money back to the people and let people decide what's the best way to invest it. For anybody that didn't hear about Give Directly yet or a lot of the work of the Effective Altruism Movement, go and look into it. It's fascinating. It will challenge you about philanthropy probably quite a bit. It's basically wiring money into the pockets of the poorest of the poorest in mostly East Africa, but they're definitely expanded and they are fully free to spend it the way they want as they are the people that know the best how to get out of poverty. And they've been very, very successful and very rigorous in terms of measurement. So definitely recommended to look into gift directly. I think it's .org, but if you search for it, you'll find it. But now after one year working with a supermarket, we're also working with two farmers that supply a lot of the fruits and vegetables there and discussing with them, okay, can we spend these funds? It becomes a bit like fair trade, almost like it goes into a pot that they can manage. I mean, of course, you want to avoid certain things of fair trade, but it's I mean, you want to empower the people that pay the cost also locally, literally, because they pay the cost of the chemicals, they pay the cost of air pollution, low wages, etc. Somehow, yeah, to get it into their pockets would be ideal. Yeah, it's fine that you mentioned fair trade. We also work with a fair trade flower farm in East Africa. With a fl- some flower shops in Amsterdam, we also collected extra premium that could be put in the workers' fund. But uh, actually, we have a, a vision that goes beyond that. And the vision is that this extra cost, which we call the true price gap, is the gap from the price, normal price to the true price, should be used for remediation. So all the, when your product is in the shop, it has already been produced. All the impacts it has created should also be paid off when you buy the product. And we don't necessarily say the consumer should pay this price. But we say it's linked with the transaction of this buying this product. Could also be, of course, that this cost is spread along uh, different steps of the value chain, wherever the profit lies. The, anyway, who benefits should pay the costs. And then, uh, then the idea is that some types of impacts you can compensate people. Some type of impacts you could reverse them or restore them in the environment. We also add calculate some impacts as a sort of, we call it retribution cost. It's a sort of almost like a justice cost, injustice cost, which we estimate looking at fines in different countries. How does that work? What do you mean by fines? So what is the... Yeah, legal legal fines, yeah. For example, when we look at, at labor rights violation, human rights violations, you can uh, t- talk about restoration costs, which would be, for example... In the case of uh, child labor, you look at the cost for getting children out of child labor, program costs. You could look at compensation costs, like costs to compensate people for the damage that they have received. And we say, yeah, you should definitely do both of these. But it's also not enough. It's not enough because it's not just, okay, now you're compensated, it's all good. We say, no, there is something more on top of that. Now we can continue doing the same. No. Yeah. yeah. So there's a component that is illegal, actually, to have child labor, right? You, it's, it's not allowed. It still happens in some places, especially in, in the northern part of the world or, or in more developed, industrialized places where people are able to afford more. 
they should also be able to afford that to check that there is no child labor. So there is a big responsibility there. And then we, we also look at the costs of child labor fines in different countries to sort of derive uh, an additional retribution cost. And then we have a, in the true principles for true pricing. We sort of set out our vision of how you can, on one side, calculate this cost for different types of impacts. And on the other side, it also provides a blueprint of if this would be a reality in the shop, how you, would you use the money? And that's what we're working uh, towards now to really make this market on the other side as well. And have you seen a big let's say, shift in attention in the last, let's say, two years, corona years or crazy crisis year, food security, empty shelves, etc. What has happened? Is there more attention? Is there finally, I see a lot of interest in, let's say, the food sector. Have you seen the same through your work in, in true cost accounting and true pricing? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. I think so. I think there is um, definitely here in the Netherlands a lot of talking about it. it the word true price made its ways into the Ministry of Agriculture policies or plans and also into the program of some uh, political parties, qu quite a few. So that's definitely something that you couldn't say five years ago. I think also in the sustainable agriculture space, regenerative agriculture as well, you hear it more and more. I think it is a bit, it's a very powerful concept because it's a bit intuitive, the fact that there is a price and we're not paying it yeah yeah we're not paying it and at the same time it also puts me everyone is able to communicate about this problem because the price is such a uni and the cost is such a universal concept and then uh, we can uh, we can start talking about this problem in with a common language so from the farmer to the retailer to the consumer to the policymaker is some kind of something that it's easy to grasp with a goal i'm imagining that at some point, the gap becomes smaller. Absolutely, yes. In a sense that uh, that this money is used, or other money is used, and investments are used. Except that the agriculture principles, the agriculture, sorry, practices, and of course the social practices on the farms, in the value chain, in the slaughterhouses, in the whole chain, which is definitely a slavery term, all the way up to your plate is paid properly, and thus the gap at some point disappears. Is that the long-term vision? Absolutely, yes. So the goal is a, yeah, a sustainable and inclusive economy. And this is just an intermediate step to get there. But in the end, so in economic terms, of course, you talk about externalities. So there is some costs which are not paid by the value chain, but they are created. External costs, therefore. And uh, this is the idea that they should be internalized. They should become production costs. Every time you pollute, the, you cannot pollute the water. You have to put more filters. You have to change your technology. And that, that way, you internalize these costs. And then the product is sustainable. The production becomes sustainable. And these calculations become part of the suppliers, the companies that buy it, the retailers, etc. How about the accessibility? 
because I, I can imagine people already think, yeah, but it means that stuff gets more expensive. I mean, it means that we all share the price for something we anyway are end up paying or our future generations. But what do you say when, I don't know, your in-laws or somebody says, yeah, but that means things get more expensive in the supermarket. What about people that cannot afford that? Yeah, so it, of course it can be actually implemented in different ways. So the way that we do it is we put in the shop as an option. This is our way of doing it. So pay if you can, and then you somehow need to calculate, of course, how many people do that, which has to compensate for the people that don't. But it's also that's a potentially fairer way of doing it. Yeah, you you could also, on a bigger scale, when you talk about just true pricing, so higher costs for products that are more polluting, products that have a worse history, how they're made, you can also think about using the money differently. If a government does it, you know, the possibilities are also other possibilities. You can use it to clean up the act, but you can also use it to subsidize more sustainable alternatives. For example, for the case of food, eh? we did this work for the United Nations Food System Summit, a study about the global true cost of food. And uh, the biggest part is the health costs. So we look at environmental costs and uh, we look at health costs of uh, consumption. And uh, that was bigger than the environmental cost, according to the way that we looked at it. I actually have the numbers here. It's a fascinating research. I'll put it in the links below, but just the externalities, I'm using that word again, I'm reading here. So the total global food, it's going to be a lot of zeros, okay? So be ready. The current total global food consumption is about 9 trillion. That's, I think, 12 zeros US dollars. These externalities that occur from this food system are 7 trillion in environmental costs. So the seven, so nine is what we pay all together for our food every year. So it's seven in environmental costs. It's 11, what you mentioned, in human life. That's the health cost. So it's more. So we pay more for the human costs of the food system than actually we pay for food. And then there's another one trillion in economic costs as well. So together, I think the summary is quite interestingly that food should be three times as expensive globally, on average, obviously taking in huge differences to pay for all the costs that, that occur, which is massive. It's like the health part is very, very like out of sync with, with the rest if you look at it. Yeah, and this is the, of course, not the food should be three times expensive. This is the current food system, yeah. if you would pay the true price. But we hope that we can have a more sustainable food system, which doesn't triple the price. What was the biggest, do you remember from that report? Or I will just link it below as well. That health piece, was there an in, like the 11 trillion? Is that the obesitas epidemic or what? There must be a big chunk of that in, the, are we eating the wrong things, too much salt, sugar, etc., or is it very spread out, like all the things we get from eating eating the wrong kind of food? It was mainly cardiovascular diseases. Wow. Okay. And so then I think that's a massive killer. Yeah. I would have to look it up, but yeah, sugar, salt, that would be the fat, that would be the biggest causes. That's very interesting. Yeah. And that's of course depends on where you are, etc. But a rough estimate, like we all pay the price now or in the future which is a multiple of what we currently pay for our food. And thus, either we continue doing that or we start paying the price or we start cleaning up the food system. That's uh, sort of the two options we, we have. Yeah, and uh, I think similar studies, uh, like the, there was one published by the Rockefeller Foundation about the true cost of food in the United States, which I based think... Based on your research uh, or based on your framework. Yeah, yeah they used uh, part of our monetization factors and uh, they found similar things. So that external costs would be way higher than the actual value of the food. But I think, yeah, so you asked 
how are we going to be able to afford this as consumers when we are in the shop? And on one side, it is, um, yeah, so you could think about implementing in a way that makes the healthy choice, the sustainable choice cheaper. And that would already shift shift the economy after a bit. You have to bring in those health costs basically somewhere because somewhere we're paying for those health costs. Like the health system became so incredibly expensive over the last, like especially in the global north, obviously, that those costs should come to fixing the food system. Yeah, that's because, a good point. This part of it is uh, the healthcare cost. Part of it is just the value of health for people, the well-being loss. You know, it's not only about how much it costs to to cure. It's better to, to be healthy than, than to fix you to become healthy. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, another point is that once you opti- if you would optimize the economy in this way, the gap would be smaller. I mean, the rise in price we think it's it's going to be smaller when you actually prevent things rather than looking at all the damage that you create and calculating that, which is a bit what we're doing right now. And yeah, the third, the third thing is also that, well, it might become more expensive, but for me personally, it's also just a mirror of the, f- the fact where we are, right? The world the truth. Yeah. is full and we need to think about how to deal with that. You know, we realize that the environment's going to be, it's under pressure everywhere but also people are under pressure everywhere and we have to adapt. We have to go through a transition that we don't know exactly where it goes, but it could mean less consumption. And and so what would you say, let's say there, there's a, uh, I wouldn't say a stadium, let's say a theater full of, of investors listening to this and we're on stage and we're having this, this conversation live, which at some point we hope to, to do. Um, what would you tell them with all this data, all this research, all these pricing, all these numbers, um, what would you tell them? Obviously, not giving investment advice, um, but where to start looking to deploy their capital or to invest? What, what are interesting places you think that's where, um, let's say, investment capital could should start digging a bit deeper and, and start doing things? Is that on the health side? Is that on the measurement side? Is that where, where would you see a role for uh, investment capital in, in this transition? I find it difficult. I'm... Uh... Starting a lot of problems that uh, the market has not been able to solve. <laughs> and then I have to think uh, maybe I'm not uh, qualified to give investment advice. Uh, but I think the natural capital, of course, it's being right now not as valuable as other uh, types of investment. But I think in the future, if you want to invest long term, that's where the value will come from. It's much more safe. And uh, also, it's interesting the fact that these true price gaps are very small for each product sometimes. Uh, I mean, when we look at the global cost, you see it comes out very big. It's massive, but on fruit, it's a euro. And what is it on coffee, for instance? Do you know? Or chocolate? I think also, yeah, you have to think just a matter of cents or uh, half a euro. Well, they are very destructive. It's not a light product for the earth, let's say chocolate and coffee. And even there, if it's only cents or maybe 50 cents or less than a euro, it shows the potential. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but they're huge. They're huge markets. Yeah. But uh, we also didn't look at the health costs of coffee <laughs> in, the, in the normal true price calculation that we do. Yeah. And part of it, I, I can talk about it later, but we... Uh, the framework that we developed, we call it the rights-based approach to true pricing. And part of it, of the health cost is also, yeah, to what extent is it a consumer's choice to buy unhealthy food? To what extent is it actually 
responsibility of the producer. And uh, of course, you can have a two or three podcast episodes about this this dilemma. Just about that, yeah. But right now we we, we focus a lot on uh, with our work also on environment costs and uh, labor rights because that's very straightforward actually that we need to do something about it and it's everyone's responsibility. And uh, but the fact that these uh, margins are quite small when you bring it down to the product level, I think that's an interesting possibility for when uh, making it possible for consumers to cover it without having to have the whole intermediary value chain step. So you know, if you go and buy a, a cup of coffee, it will be possible maybe to know where it comes from and then to also be able to pay those 10 cents extra to someone who made their coffee beans and for whom it makes a big difference. And with technology, we can now probably get that money straight into their pockets. Yeah, and I, but I also think that really the people really want to make a difference and this really makes them, it gives them a tool. Hmm. Do you see that the consumer is, I mean, the 100,000 transactions in that supermarket since last year, Black Friday is a proof of that. But do you see that as well? Like the consumer, maybe not the average, but a good chunk of consumers is ready for this and is eager and hungry for these kind of tools to give them more to do than only to buy organic or only to buy certain things? Well, if you think about consumers, you question, but if you look at them as people or us as people, Oftentimes, we don't want to know how something is produced because we enjoy it so much. And then we learned about how it's being produced and it creates some uh, environmental problems. It creates social issues. For sure. Yeah. And then we say, oh, I don't want to buy anymore or I don't want to hear, I want to forget. But if you would say, well, you can just pay a few cents extra to help in this, to help the transition to getting rid of this, I think a lot of people don't have these uh, these tools now to do something about uh, it. Uh, and they don't have the research. Uh. So I believe that people want to make a positive difference, but right now it's impossible. You know, it seems like everywhere you turn, you hit something. Yeah. You're creating climate change. Which is true, probably. You just stop <laughs> breathing. Yeah. And so let's unpack that rights-based approach a bit. You mentioned the labor right. I mean, nobody can argue with that or should be able to argue with that, but what, you're taking it beyond that as well. What is the rights-based approach? So I think it's not a scientific exercise to measure the true price. It has some uh, normative choices that you have to make, like, yeah, what exactly are you going to take into account and what not? And how are you going to put a price on certain things? So no scientist can answer that. And uh, maybe economists can answer that, but do you want only economists to answer that? So we think the idea is that well if you have some normative choices to do what's the highest normative framework that we have the reference that we share with all the people in the world and that is uh, the human rights uh, the international law that when it was done like less than 100 years ago the declaration of human rights it was really a milestone in the history of humanity and now of course we were a lot of us born after that and it sounds like oh it's always been there but it's not it's an intentional statement by all the governments of the world to do certain things like eradicate, yeah, give everywhere a decent standard of living, the opportunity to have good health, and uh, the freedom from many types of suffering. And uh, we try to make an economic framework which is within that. So we say, how do we actually use it? Is 
we include only elements so these impacts that you actually sum on top of the true price you only include those that we can clearly link to some uh, united nation goal united nation declaration and other things that's why i was saying consumer health it, it can be a bit, quite a bit of a discussion because it's the question is the question whether it's uh, an infringement of someone's right or not and another way that we use a human rights framework is uh, this idea of remediation costs. So I think uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, started the human rights uh, discussion or policy making started to move towards business as well. So businesses also have responsibility for what happens in their value chains regarding human rights. They share the responsibility of government. And um, this is what now is really turning into some law eh? in the European Union. Uh, I don't know outside, but uh, they are starting to hold, to pass laws that say a company is responsible for their suppliers' uh, human rights infringement. And the duty of business in this document called the Human United Nations Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, which is actually one of the sources of the whole corporate responsibility movement. The duty of business in this document is to remediate harm made. So we say, okay, let's just take that as a way to calculate the price. What would it cost to remediate? So, yeah, I think... Uh, the rights-based approach to true pricing is saying, let's make an economic system which actually wants to respect the rights of people. So, of course, you want to prevent infringement first, but whenever we can see, because there is data showing that there is infringement, then we must be able to remediate it and let's put that in the price. And we also think that sustainability is a matter of human rights. I think the United Nations is mildly stating this by to be two separate sites sustainable development and human rights and we say let's make this link i mean we're talking about the rights of future generations and uh sustainability it's also a matter of their rights so we can actually develop a framework which covers both environmental and social uh, implications of a product which is based on rights so what are the next steps? I mean, you mentioned the three steps. First, transparency, then it's an option to pay this price, and then it's mandatory. Of course, there are many ways to that could happen. It could be that the shop, like we discussed, put that in, or the government. Or but what do you see now as big milestones? Like, the, What are the next big milestones for you guys, basically, in this transition? I mean, the Black Friday launch is always interesting, but what are you looking forward to, or what are big, big ones? Yeah, we want to see transparency. So businesses that are actually succeeding more in the market by being transparent, being rewarded by consumers. And that's why we also want to see something that reaches the people, not only it's something for the sustainability report or the sustainability department or the academics. Also, we want to see, yeah, governments starting to, or actually we see also in the Netherlands a bit, you know, there's um, value chain, actors so market players are actually companies are actually starting to discuss this with the government it's a great sort of a level playing field which would be interesting for them yeah yeah exactly yeah. because sometimes to make a value chain more sustainable so i'm not talking now about regenerative agriculture starting 
a brand new system, but also for you know farmers to convert, it's a big price tag because a lot of the reward on environmental cost is not yet paying off. But what if it would be? And very different question. If you'd be in charge of quite a large investment fund, let's say a billion dollars or a billion euros where in, in, in Europe, obviously you're not an investor. Uh, you don't give investment advice that we mentioned before, but what if you tomorrow morning had a new job and you'd be in charge of this investment fund? What would you focus on? Like, let's say the length could be very, very long, but it's definitely an investment fund, not a grant fund. What would be the main sectors or the main approaches? Would it be a lot of, a lot of compost facilities? Uh, what would you focus on with your investment fund if you'd be in charge tomorrow morning? I don't know. I find it very difficult. I've been thinking about this question since I listened to your podcast uh, once uh, the first time, but I really don't know. I see all these uh, problems that markets uh, cannot solve, and I'm more thinking like, you know, any different policy. What grant funding could do there? Yeah. Lobby could do. Yeah. We need different policy. We need more commons. We need more donations of land, of knowledge. We need different education system. Uh, we have a lot of technology already. Uh, and uh, I think, yeah, if I would say something, I would probably say I would like to see the true prices in all the big retail retailers from electronics to t-shirts to to food is there any sector i mean would you start with food or would you start with electronics or is there or and even within food is there some sector you would start with like some subsector like wow that would be good from what i know now would be amazing to do bananas everywhere in europe or it would be amazing to do meat or or something like that or cell phones i mean could be yeah how we see it is also there is different products and there is from true pricing perspective, different themes that you can get started with. Do you start with soil? Do you start with climate? Do you start with pesticides? Do you start with living wages? I would say, yeah, I would probably start with, uh, with food, agri and climate because I feel that the time is really right for it. And then it could be that a um, few years from now, this could be uh, te technically possible and a few years more down the line, it would be normal. Normal, yeah. So we're talking less than 10 years. That's what I, I hear. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also thinking about living wages, just covering this gap. So the living wage is also a framework which is quite well developed to say, okay, these are the, at least the cost of a decent standard of living. And uh, they're not being met by the economy in uh, this world, <laughs> in this year. And it, the gap is so small. When you bring it back to our products, the gap is so small. But of course, if you would think 30 cents for a t-shirt, uh, if you talk about you know, cotton farming, then it would be double the price out of the factory. And that also translates through the value chain through many multipliers to also double the cost of a t-shirt, but actually just started with 30 cents extra wage. And I think that is a technological challenge that I think we should be able to solve. And it's an investment that I think would pay itself back because there is a hunger for uh, paying buying products by consumers where you don't have to worry about yeah. the social implications. You don't have to worry about environmental implications. So if I would translate your answer of what would you invest in, it would be a portfolio of companies, maybe starting them or help them get off the ground or investing in larger ones and transition them with mandatory true pricing where consumers can buy the things they are normally anyway buying and not have to worry at all about the environmental and social costs. I think it's also about making the technology available that any company could use to track the carbon, track the wages, 
show them to the consumer and allow the consumer then to pay if they want. And then it could be that the retailer could decide to pay it off themselves without even offering the consumer this choice, you know. But which is up to the retailer, yeah. Which is up to the. I mean, they have their impact goals as well and are hungry for ways to show things, and so we need to give them that. Why not? I think it's a great way to end this conversation. I think there's a lot more to discuss. We'll definitely check in before the next Black Friday because you're constantly launching things, and it feels like. The moment has come. It's still very small, like a one shop in Amsterdam, a lot of internal discussions, a few cafes, a few places, but it's so much more than a few years ago when I started following this movement that it's very, I mean, if this is an exponential growth curve, we should be happy about it because it seems that, I mean, with the big reports on the food costs or the cost of the food system, both globally and in the US, we should start waking up about especially the social costs and of course the environmental costs. So thank you so much for your time. I want to say one thing, Kud, uh, I want to say one thing, because I looked it up. Most people don't know that the GDP was invented in 1937, less than 100 years ago, and it was became the world standard in 1944, the global gross domestic product. And it was never meant to be the world standard for like the, the one thing that we all look at if we're doing okay as a country or not is that. But I don't think that it, the, the inventors never did it that way. So, But also like it's a young thing. And if we think long term, we can reimagine the way we do accounting. The international accounting standard for companies, so the way the companies account for costs, became a global standard in 1973. Wow. Which means why in 2030 or 25 there should not be a true cost accounting standard, which is actually the global standard. That's how you define profit, loss, environmental costs, social costs. I think we'll look back at that and think, of course, it's uh, so it's very, that's very interesting. It's very young, but it comes back to your opening point, almost like a holistic approach here and not an unintended consequences, because I'm pretty sure the GDP inventors or the first people that wrote about it didn't intend it to be the one and only holy grail that we all focus on. And if that goes down, somehow we're all losing. But as you made it very clear, I mean, less is also interesting, especially in the global north. So it became something much bigger than they could ever imagined and got us off to the races, basically, in the wrong way. So it's we need to be careful also with this, because there could be unintended consequences of the true cost accounting. Actually, a final question that's never the final question. What do you see as potential risks here? Yeah, of course, what you said, there's always a blind spot when you put your eyes on something and then it takes 10 years for it to become a global standard, if you're lucky. And then once it's a global standard, the world has already changed. And then you maybe have a blind spot. Or maybe you have a blind spot from the beginning. I think to not have blind spot, the best way to do is to develop this thing with a participative approach. So not just a, a group of, of people in uh, universities or in a research center, but involve civil society, involve government, involve business, and uh, farmers, involve uh, grassroots organizations. Yeah, the people there are actually on the ground. So I think the risk is that it becomes uh, yeah, monopolized by a small group of people, the way the new standard is made. And then uh, we're going to be indeed going towards next uh, crisis without realizing for a while. <laughs> we're going to be in deep trouble, yeah. Thank you so much, Peter, for sharing and uh, we'll definitely be checking in. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, 
If this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investing or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast. <laughs>